Knoll has been speaking about Archimedes from this and other podiums for going on 10 years, something like. And uh, he keeps thinking that he'll give one final lecture and get it out of his system. And this may be it. He's curator of manuscripts and printed books at the Walters, which has uh, possession of the Archimedes Palimpsest, one of the most important manuscripts in existence. I think most people would now agree. And the story, the continuing story, of its rise and progress is, I hope you'll also agree, a fascinating one. We'll know. Thank you, Terry. It's a great pleasure and indeed honor to be back at Rare Book School um, once again. Uh, Felix Oyens uh, sold the Archimedes Palimpsest at 2 p.m. on the 29th of October, 1998. And uh, he sold it for $2.2 million uh, to an American private collector um, who rather unceremoniously left it on my desk on the 19th of January, 1999. Um, he's a man of few words, and, uh, and the unfolding story of that project and where we are now is the subject of my talk tonight. Um, and there are 150 slides in this talk, so I have to keep going. Um, Archimedes the man I'm not going to talk about. Archimedes the book. Uh, that's it, as it arrived on my desk on the 19th of January. Um, there are three manuscripts by which we know all the treaties of Archimedes. They're very boringly A, B, and C. A was lost in 1564, B was last heard of in 1311, and that is Codex C. It's the earliest extant Archimedes manuscript by 400 years. It's the unique surviving copy of Archimedes' method of mechanical theorems, the unique surviving copy of Mr. Mackie, and the unique surviving copy of one floating bodies in the original Greek. And that's why it went for $2.2 million. Uh, it was made in Constantinople in the 10th century. And there's the imperial palace of Constantinople, still extant. The important thing, the difficult thing about this manuscript is that it's a palimpsest. That is to say, the Archimedes manuscript was taken apart, the text was scraped off, the uh, conjoint bifolia of the manuscripts were cut in half, stacked in a corner, rotated 90 degrees, and overwritten with a prayer book. Now, very importantly, this wasn't just the Archimedes manuscript that went to make up this prayer book. There were seven other manuscripts all higgledy-piggledy scraped off and turned into this prayer book. Uh, that's the only attractive picture ever taken of the Archimedes calendar. <laughs> it's out of focus. Uh, it spent most of its time at the Monastery of St. Sarvis, which is about eight miles east of Jerusalem in the Judean desert. Uh, and uh, it's still a fantastic and beautiful place. Uh, when we went there, there was a uh, brother Lazarus, uh, who was the only member of the community of 13 who admitted to speaking English. Uh, he was a hippie in San Francisco, uh, but he's found peace at St. Sarvis, and the only things he misses is the Grateful Dead. Um, but he's reminded of it by the Samanchan, which is the bar that you ring for some prayer. Uh, it 
uh, ended up at uh, the daughter house of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem in Constantinople. Uh, and it was catalogued there by Papadopoulos Kerameus in 1899 as manuscript 355. Um, but only the prayer book text was catalogued. Uh, and he transcribed just a very small portion of the other text. Uh, he was paid, paid by the page for his work. He didn't have tenure, so he liked to make long catalog descriptions. And this catalog came to the attention of a man called Johann Ludwig Heiberg, who was professor of philology at the University of Copenhagen, who had just done the complete edition of Archimedes. Uh, so he looked at the catalogue and said, that's Archimedes, I'd never read it before. Uh, he went to uh, the Metopion and uh, discovered completely new treaties by one of the founding fathers of Western science uh, and had to completely redo his edition of Archimedes, which was published by Teubner between 1910 and 1915, and is still the standard work on Archimedes. Uh, he was only there for the summer. He did have tenure. He had his summer back. Uh, so he took photos, which were lost, but we found them, and they're invaluable historical documents for reasons I'll explain in a minute. Uh, you'll see in the prayer book text here, the Archimedes text is two columns going this way. Um, July 16th, 1907, front page New York, front, front page news in the New York Times. And you'd have thought that such an important manuscript containing foundational texts of Western society would then be safe. Uh, not so. The First World War comes along, and uh, at the end of it, Ataturk founds the modern state of Turkey. It's not a good idea to be Greek in Constantinople at the foundation of the Turkish nationalism. Uh, but it's also a secular state. Um, the, most of the manuscripts of the Metopion were moved surreptitiously to the National Library in Athens, and they were there by 1938, except for the good ones. The good ones largely came to America. They're found at Dumbarton Oaks, at the Cleveland Museum of Art, and at the Walters Art Museum. This is manuscript 529. Uh, they're all pretty. The Archimedes manuscript is not pretty, which is perhaps why it never made it onto the American art market. Uh, it entered a private collection in Paris, uh, where it was unavailable for study uh, until the sale in 1998. Um, in front of these times, once again, the um, 2.2 million. There were only three people interested in it. Who was the Greek patriarch who the day before the sale and decided it was stolen from one of his libraries after 72 years? Uh, there was a Greek government that decided that Archimedes was Greek, and there was a private owner, and the book went to the private owner. Uh, and people were concerned about such a monumental treasure going into the hands of a private owner. Um, I managed to track down this private owner and uh, persuaded him that it would be a good idea if he lent it to me. Um, <laughs> which posed a few problems uh, because the manuscript is in very bad condition and I'm not a world expert on Archimedes. Um, the manuscript is in much worse condition than it was when Heiberg saw it. Uh, this is a Heiberg photograph that he took in 1906. This is the 16th page of the method that he read. That's why it says M16 there. And it's on the side because he's reading it down this way. This is the same folio today. And Iberg did as good a job as he could with his photographs, but there's more to get, but now you have to read through that. 
Um, they're forgeries. They're based on a one-to-one -one scale from uh, Ornio's publication from 1929. Uh, Manuscript record of the Um He's a good forger. Uh, there are forgeries by him uh, at Duke University, at Richmond University, and uh, and more turning up all the time as we work on this. Um, at the time of the sale, it was assumed that this was done by the monks of the Matokio. Uh, not so. The forgeries contain thalocyanine green, which was only commercially available in Germany after 1938. So it was done after the manuscript left the Matokio. Um, and it was also done after, it, put it this way, if, if it was ever forgotten that this manuscript contained texts after, after they left the Matokio, if this, man, if this knowledge was dropped, it was recovered, yeah. And it was recovered by the 10th of February, 1934. Uh, this is a letter to Professor Harold R. Willoughby uh, of the University of Chicago uh, offering the Archimedes palimpsest for sale uh, because it's been identified as the Archimedes palimpsest by a wonderful man called Reginald Burton Hazelton, who was curator of manuscripts at the Huntington Library. Unbelievable. <coughs> You know you've got the Archimedes, the unique source for Archimedes' works, and you paint over it in gold. Uh, there are three leaves now missing from the manuscript that we know have forgeries on them, and they still come up for sale. So if you have to see a forgery that looks approximately like that on your toilet wall, have a look on the other side if you see two texts. One of them is almost certainly unread Archimedes' method of mechanical theorems and I know who wants to buy it. <laughs> That's not the worst problem. The worst problem is, the, well, one of the problems is the mold. It's made of parchment. Parchment's made of animal skin. Animal skin is tough. You can burn it, or you can, or you can, or you can leave it in water. And that's more or less what happened to this. This is the unique surviving page of Archimedes' Stomachium. This is Heiberg's photograph of it. There's ST, it's 177B. This is the same folio today, and it's got holes in it. I like to think of this as a cross-section of the mind of a great man, but with bovine spongiform encapulopathy. It's not good. And however good our imaging techniques are going to be, we're not going to be able to get what's in there. We've looked very hard at this, too. This book was a write-off. And if, uh, at the time of the auction, you asked a scholar what they thought of this book, they'd have said, and they did say, it's a relic. Uh, but it's not of much research interest because it's now in such bad condition. And Heiberg was a consummate philologist. Um, and that's perhaps one of the reasons why no academic institution bought him. Uh, that's how it was when it arrived on my desk on the 19th of January, 1999. And it immediately became apparent that... Uh, you know, while we said we could put this on exhibition, what this book needed was an integrated program of imaging, of conservation imaging and scholarship. Uh, it needed very clever imaging, it needed conservation, and it needed the very best scholars. And it became clear that the owner was going to fund all the work. So I haven't had to write a grant proposal to do this. Uh, I have needed a lot of help from experts around the world. And when the book arrived on my desk in uh, 
we had an article in the Washington Post, and one of the one, most wonderful emails of my life went something like this. It said, Dear Dr. Noel, read with interest your article in the Washington Post. It certainly puts our work into perspective. We here at the National Reconnaissance Office have a range of equipment that might be able to help you and a wide range of contacts in the imaging community. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please do. If not, uh, good luck with your endeavors. Yours sincerely, Michael Beto, National Policy Director, National Reconnaissance, National Reconnaissance Office. So I rang him up very much to Baltimore. And actually, we couldn't use government because we can't spend American tax dollars on a private object. Um, but Mike is, uh, Mike Toad is an expert in uh, managing complicated imaging systems for the government, and he's been program managing uh, this project. Um, he's taught me a lot. Um, he hasn't taught me how to read a Gantt chart, but he has lots of Gantt charts. Now we know how to do, run a program uh, to the correct performance on schedule. Um, providing value to an owner and Archimedes text of the world. That's what we try and do. Uh, and I'm going to present what we've done um, step by step. So I'm going to talk about the conservation first and then the imaging and then the scholarship. But actually, it's been an iterative process with a feedback loop, which is absolutely essential to what we do. The imaging, uh, the conservation is all done by Abigail Quant, the curator of manuscripts. No, not the curator, that's me. The conservator of manuscripts and rare books at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. Um, and uh, her job was pretty tricky. Um, this is a uh, microscopic core sample of the Archimedes manuscript. It's the size of a pinhead. Uh, but you can see here that the collagen that makes up the parchment is breaking apart. So it's not like a normal parchment document. It's not tough anymore. The mold has literally digested the parchment, and it's like tissue paper. Uh, that's an example of what it's like. Uh, that's not the worst problem. The worst problem is this. This is the spine of the book. Now, of course, medieval books aren't glued up. That's a post-medieval practice, and you can use different types of glue. This dirty glue is not too much of a problem. It's hide glue. It's made from animal parts. You can take that off reasonably quickly. This is Elmer's wood glue, polyvinyl acetate. Uh, it is much stronger than the parchment support that is on it. And, of course, um, the Archimedes text runs through the spine of the book. So it's Archimedes text in there. Very tricky. Uh, it took four years for Abigail to take the book apart. This is a rare action shot. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can think that pages don't look so bad. Uh, but if you backlight them, they just look terrible. This is actually the first page of the book. And I'm going to try and separate out scholarship from everything else as far as I can. Uh, the first page of the book is in bad condition, obviously because it's got wormholes. Now, worms don't like parchment, actually, they like beach, but they have a bad sense of direction. So very often, in the first page of a medieval manuscript, you'll get wormholes and staining from the cover and that sort of thing. Uh, but as you took it apart, we looked at it under ultraviolet light, and we realized that the first page of the book was a page of on floating bodies. That Heiberg simply couldn't read, hadn't read, and it's part of the, the final proposition of on floating bodies too, which is, by common consent, the most complicated of Archimedes's and so this is the only place that you can find it in Greek if you can possibly read it. We've just read two words at that stage. Um, Abigail makes maps on mylar of all the damage. Uh, so that's what they look like. You can have balloon oh, paper, all sorts of dreadful stuff is on this thing. Um, here she is. 
open surgery. This is typical of the detritus that she finds, which of course, and this is the glue that she's taking, which she's taking apart. Very labor-intensive work, bit by bit. All documented fragments by the choir to the leaf from, where, from which they come. All documented. Uh, the degree to which this book has been knocked around is something to which only Abigail can speak in detail. Um, it's, been, it's, it's just been abused so badly. Here, she's taken off a parchment strip that's been attached to one of the forgery pages, or four forged pages in the book, the forgery on the other side of this. It's been cut out and stuck back into the manuscript on numerous occasions. And here's a parchment strip taken down the side of this page. So here you can see that she's taking it off the page very, very carefully, because it's the unique source for Archimedes' method, and Heiberg hadn't read it. Uh, that's what it looks like when she takes it off. But this is actually where it comes from in the book. It was taken off from another place. Uh, this looks like the medieval tab to help you get to the beginning of a gospel book, which is just a complete fabrication. This tag, therefore, is a complete fabrication. Uh, so you take it off and you put it back where it belongs. This sort of work takes forever. These tiny little fragments that might reveal another word of Archimedes that otherwise you don't know, uh, they look like that. You image them under UV, put them back in the right place. It takes a long time. Little parchment strips. Everything that we can say from this book, we do and we documented thoroughly. Uh, this is an untypically sexy example of what Abigail does, because most of the work that she does, you can't really see very well. Um, but this is a typically damaged gutter, uh, and you can see prayer book text going that way, and you might be able to see vague traces of Archimedes text going that way. Uh, there she are, she's, she's making it. So this is a before, this is an after, and this is a low-quality UV JPEG sent to a scholar in California, more of him later, who circles that with Adobe Photoshop and sends it back to us and says, this is the earliest symbol of a circle in the history of Western mathematics. And days like that are good days. Um, they were very, very few and far between, I have to say. It was a slog. Um, Abigail's job is, is not to... Uh, complete conservation on the book. It's to make the text as legible as possible, as safely as possible for the images to, to read it. So now the Archimedes leaves are still extremely fragile, but we can actually lay them on mats and we can image them. So now I'm going to move on to the imaging. Um, with Mike's help, we drew up a request for proposals. We got back six proposals. We eliminated uh, we suggested to the owner that here are three, and what should we do? He said, use these two. So we used these two. Um, there were two teams. And one team was from the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University. This is Bill Christens Barry. Um, and the other team was made up of two people. One was Keith Knox, who at the time was working for Xerox, but now works at the, the Boeing Corporation in Hawaii, looking at things in the sky, mainly coming from China. And uh, Roger Easton, who is the Professor of Imaging Science at the Chester Carlson Center for Imaging Science at RIT. 
and he'd been working with these guys now for a long time. Uh, because after an initial competitive phase between these two teams, we merged them together, and they they've been a very effective, um, very effective team to work with. Um, essentially, uh, we use a technique called multispectral imaging. This is the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, visible light is a very small part of it. Infrared is a longer wavelength than we can see. This is a shorter wavelength that you can see. X-rays, more of which later are down here. Uh, what you do with multispectral imaging is that you take images at different wavelengths of light, first of all, because if you look at something with different wavelengths of light, you see different things. Uh, in infrared, here you don't see any Archimedes undertext. In ultraviolet, here you do see some. And very often when you hear about multispectral imaging programs, what they will do is just take a whole load of images at different wavelengths of light, and one will work. We don't do that. No one image, no one wavelength really works. The Archimedes Palimpsest is such a complicated document. It's had such a complicated history. So uh, we, in various ways, combine these wavelengths of light to bring out what we want. And the early results certainly impressed me. Uh, that was a... That's an early result. That's the empirical page in normal light. And this is after it's been processed to take out the overtext and to reveal the undertext. Um, it looks impressive, so we put them in front of the um, scholarly team. He uh, said, this is incredible. Um, and this is why we needed this feedback loop. Uh, there are various reasons why it's dreadful. And, and, the, and, and they're in varying degrees interesting. First of all, actually, the spectral difference between the Crayon text and the, Arch and the Archimedes text is not very big, so you have to do a lot of processing to bring it out, which means that when you process an image a lot, you, never, you inevitably make noise. The second is that when you take images using different wavelengths of light, if you use different filters in front of the camera, uh, then that will slightly distort the image. So when you stack one on top of another, you'll have a registration problem make it look slightly blurry. And this doesn't matter if you're trying to find coca fields in the Amazon rainforest or the Zardin Love, but it does matter if you're trying to find uh, the, the niceties of recursive. Uh, we, only, we were going for great spectral definition, but we weren't particularly interested in spatial resolution, and we were wrong. So we were imaging at about 200 dpi. We now image at about 800 dpi. Um, but the really funny thing was that uh, we thought that we had to get rid of the prayer book text on top. Of course, you don't have to do that. And anyone who reads 19th century letters, where if they run out of space, they just write it 90 degrees, you, know, you can read through the prayer book text on top. That's not the problem. It's the faintness of the undertext that's the problem. So an awful lot of our processing uh, was, actually, was actually complicated and unnecessary. Um, so what do we do now? Um, well, if you look at uh, the Archimedes text in, in the, red, the red channel of normal light, the Archimedes text more, more or less disappears. If you look at it under UV light, UV fluorescent light, uh, the Archimedes text and the prayer text both appear. Um, the Archimedes text is fainter, you've got no color cube between the two things, and it's, and it's slightly fuzzy. But if you merge these two things into one digital canvas, you put the red channel 
of an RGB image into the red channel of a new digital image. And you take the blue and the green channels of the UV image and you put that into the blue and the green channels of a new image. You have a situation where the parchment comes out looking pretty white because it's light in both instances. Uh, the prayer book comes out looking pretty black because it's black in both instances. And the undertext comes out light with a reddish color because it's dark in the UV and effectively bright red in the, in the natural light. And this is a rather simple, very elegant, uh, very effective way of uh, creating uh, a process which works remarkably well in reading the Archimedes power sense. And that's the cue that we use most often uh, for scholars reading the work. Um, as we went on, uh, I was saying it was integrated. As we went on, we um, seven years. Every six months, Abigail would prepare 15 new bifolia, which we would then image. Uh, and so every every six months, the images would come down and we'd do 15 more bifolia and we would distribute them to the scholars at first on CDs and then on hard drives. All the technology was conspiring to help us. And then last summer, we imaged the whole manuscript in about two weeks using uh, an imaging system devised by John Stokes. Stokes Imaging in Austin, Texas. There he is together with Bill Christens Barrett. Uh, and Bill has developed uh, what are now known as the Eureka lights. These are these LED panels just here. Now, if you remember, I was saying that when you look, when you take an image with different filters, it comes out with different <coughs> sizes. So what we do is we take images with a different luminance, so we don't have filters at all. Uh, so we get rid of our registration problem. And uh, so that's, that's them in action. Uh, we took the images under 16 different wavelengths of light, which has only become possible recently as LEDs have grown and expanded as, as light sources, both in intensity and in wavelength. So these are images all from uh, our last August session, uh, where we were uh, imaging about 800 DPI by using a special uh, camera that took 16 shots at any one wavelength and uh, and then put them together. And uh, then we had a hub then we had Hubble trouble as I call it. Uh, because when we put them together we realized that when you took sixteen shots over a period of time, the intensity of your light source would change. Uh, as the as the uh, particularly the UV lights would heat up, uh, their light output decreased and so when you put them together you ended up with this horrible pattern on the screen, um, which we have very quietly been resolving or trying to resolve for the last six months without telling anybody. Um, but now, as you can see, we've more or less cracked it. Uh, but that was a major headache for a little while. And so you end up with um, 16 images like that, as well as the processed images that you create. Um, and that's what it looks like uh, on our data set, and of course you don't look at it like that, you zoom in, and 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 you zoom in. Or you can process it just slightly differently, and we now do take away the upper text, because one of the things that's really important about this manuscript is the diagrams. This manuscript is a unique source for the diagrams. 
but often you'd be doing the standard surgeries in the third century BC. You can see you get a much better sense of the diagrams if you take away the only text, so that's what we do for those. Uh, rather wonderful pictures coming out. Um, it was becoming clear that optical techniques, or this, te- this pseudo-color technique that we developed, wouldn't actually move the particularly difficult patients. So we then went on to, particularly as scholarly interest in our results was gathering, uh, we went into looking at other technologies and other techniques. Uh, we looked into optical character recognition. We looked into confocal microscopy. And we had a... Um, a conference that started on April Fool's Day 2004 uh, to see what other techniques we might use. Um, and uh, we realized that we could look at leaves of the palimpsest in raking lights, and even when there was no ink left, the tannic acid of which the ink was made had been etched into the parchment, and you could make, you could read, you could read the grooves if you did, if you did it in raking lights. So, this is our best image under pseudo color. I need a. Uh, okay. We're trying to look for some Archimedes text here and not seeing anything in pseudo color. But after a while, you might be able to see here that just etched in around here is a delta, an iota, an omicron, a mu, a delta. You, know, you have to be a nut to want to read this stuff. Uh, but if you really want to, you can, and I'll tell you why people wanted to in a minute. It actually says beyond that. Um, we, of course, still had the really problematic pages, these, these four forged pages, two of which were on the introduction of method of mechanical theorems that don't exist anywhere else in the world, one of, one of which we didn't have a high-level photograph for. Uh, and one of the ideas that came up at the conference was that we would do um, X-ray fluorescence imaging. And uh, three people were deeply involved in this. Bob Morton from ConocoPhillips, who uh, was a scientist for ConocoPhillips, but he took sulfur out of the petroleum force and kept the, page, kept the patent. Uh, so he does a lot of projects that does interest him. Uh, this is Gene Hall, who is professor of chemistry at Rutgers, and this is Uwe Bergman, who is the staff scientist at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Um, X-rays are much more powerful. They have a much shorter wavelength than, um, than visible light. And while visible light played with the covalent electrons out here on the end shell, uh, X-rays come in, and they're so powerful that they knock out an electron on the K shell. Uh, and then a shell, uh, an electron on on, on, on the L shell does a quantum leap into the K shell and it has to share energy. And that energy comes out and you capture it, of course. It's specific to the individual atom that it hits uh, because, it, because, the, uh, because of the, an atom is defined by uh, the number of electrons that surround it. So the energy comes out specific to the atom. Now, if it's specific to the atom and you can catch it, then you can, then you can get iron under gold, and the ink is an iron gold ink. But that's not the only trick, because once you get the electron out, you then also have to map it. You have to effectively create an iron map of the page. Uh, So here you have a a section of an x-ray fluorescence 
uh, reading of the Archimedes palimpsest, and you see calcium, you see potassium, you see chlorine, you see sulfur, you see manganese, you see copper, you see zinc, and you see iron. Calcium from the preparation of the parchment from the skin, iron from the ink. There is potential here that you have to be able to, to map it. Uh, to map it, you need a very powerful light source, and the light source we went to was the Stanford Synchrotron Radiation Laboratory at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. The synchrotron radiation lab uh, was used by particle physicists, and it was there that they discovered the tau lepton, for example, the charm quark. Uh, and they did it by sending electrons around this oval accelerator at the speed of light, or jolly nearly so. Electrons round one way, positrons round another. They hit, and you get a subatomic particle. You don't really want to put the Archimedes palimpsest in that beam. Uh, but as the electrons go around, of course, they're not going in a straight line. So as they curve, they have to shed energy, and they shed energy in the form of immensely powerful X-rays that are tunable and um, and and uh, immensely immensely powerful. So we built a we built a machine uh, to scan it. There's a diagram of the machine. Uh, this is rather wonderful. Not valid in Kansas, as per the Board of Education, November the 8th, 2005. Use of this device or substance may require, imply, and or endorse the existence of one or more of the following. Chemistry, evolution, electromagnetism, gravity, mathematics, thermodynamics, education. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it's not in Kansas, thankfully. It's in, in California. Uh, and I haven't given this lecture in Kansas yet. And before I do, I must remember to take out. <laughs> um, so here is a leaf of Archimedes on an XY stage. Here is the beam coming out here. And after about 17 hours of scanning, you end up with an iron page, an iron map of the page, and you can read the Archimedes text underneath. So, um, so why did we go to all this trouble? And how did we find the skull as well? This, this is Nigel Wilson, uh, who uh, scholars of Byzantium, uh, scribes and scholars, preeminent in the in philology and paleography of the Latin classics in the Middle Ages, I mean the Greek classics in the Middle Ages. Here I am trying to explain to them what a computer is. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, and he's been working on transcribing the Archimedes texts together with Reviel Metz, who's the professor of ancient science at Stanford. Um, and using our results, uh, this is a normal view of folios become rather famous, called Folio 105.110. I like it because you can recognize it instantly from this axilla, this armpit of this goat that's on it. And this is a pseudo-color rendering of the same page. Uh, here's the armpit of the goat. This is an early ultraviolet photograph. Reviel Net has written, in, just in Adobe Photoshop, what he thinks he can see. Here he's just guessing. And uh, here's a hole in the parchment. And here is a Q to AQ, a question to Abigail Quant, asking if the tear is possibly original. Because if it is, then of course he doesn't have to guess a letter for it. Uh, with pseudo-color, it became easier. Um, and then I got this email on Friday the 13th of April, 2001, 
in a couple of months, the fruits, the first fruits, intellectual fruits of our labor will be published together with a complete transcription of one crucial side of one page, most of which is unknown to modern science. I send you the final lines of the article as it stands in draft form. It is understated. It reads as follows. To sum up, then, the new reading from Archimedes' Indivisibles proof, which is method proposition 14, she called for some reconsideration of the position of Archimedes in some key areas of the history of mathematics, especially the two related conceptual fields of the calculus and of infinity. Uh, what we found that Archimedes was doing was calculating with absolute infinite numbers. It was always known that the Greeks had the concept of potentially you know, think of a number that's bigger than the number you just thought of. But what we found was Archimedes actually dealing with infinite sets, the sum, sum of all numbers. And he wasn't doing this naively. He knew that different sums of all numbers could be different. Um, uh, so this resulted in a very learned article published in a, in a, in a, in a journal called Skiamus, which is Latin for we know. We don't actually know. This, this journal has a circulation of about 10. <laughs> a new reading of the method proposition 14, preliminary evidence from the Archimedes Palaces, part one, published by three people, Rediel Netz, Ken Sato, and Natalie Chernetska. It was read by five because Natalie Chernetska is not Natalie. Um, <laughs> but, but the press also got hold of this, and this is why you don't believe the, pe the press. This is the Sunday Times magazine of London, the Eureka page, exclusive. It's just a few scrawled lines of Greek text, but new technology has identified the hand of Archimedes, and the results are rewriting history. Well, I advocate for this program, but even I wouldn't claim quite that much. But the press is very useful project because it's through the press that Archimedes has found his friends, uh, including Mike Toes and many others. Um, then Reviel and Nigel turned their attention to the Stomachian, which uniquely survives in this, in, this, in this manuscript. And it was known that the Stomachian consisted of a square that was made up of 14 bits. Um, but it was in very bad condition even when Heiberg saw it, and Heiberg couldn't read it very well, and he more or less gave up. Uh, we don't know what Archimedes was doing with this square. And then Reviel thought he had an idea. Uh, you know, the problem is that, so Archimedes is playing with these 14 bits of this square, but there are an infinite number of combinations. So what's interesting about this, but if you read the text with pseudo-color, you can you can interpret the text as Archimedes posing the question, well, how many ways can you, what's the number of combinations of these 14 pieces? That is to say, how many ways can you recombine these four pieces and still make a perfect square? Now, intuitively, you might say one, uh, but it becomes an interesting problem. Uh, and the answer to this problem is that there are actually 17,152 ways in which you can take that square, recombine those 14 pieces. And if this is truly uh, what the Stomachian is about, then this makes it the uh, earliest example in the history of Western science of something called combinatorics, uh, which if you play poker is merely probability, but if you know about computers as a foundational science of what computing. And the trouble is we only have the first page of the text, so we don't have the answer. We don't know that Archimedes got it right. And when we were calculating it, you know, we didn't know what the answer was. So we got 
uh, Percy Diaconis, who is a MacArthur Fellow in probability, to work out the number without, uh, without a computer. And you've got Bill Cutler to run software to work out the answer using a computer, and luckily they came up uh, with the same number. This is the normal view of the Stomachian square, but there are 536 basic families uh, that you can use, and thereafter, if they it's just done by sort of basic rotation. Uh, meanwhile, Natalie Chernetska's role in all this was not so much to look at the Archimedes text, but to look at those other texts that were in the manuscript that Heiberg hadn't paid any attention to. Not that it was his fault, Heiberg was interested in Archimedes, uh, and not the other texts in the manuscript. And the other texts in the manuscript were impossible to read until we developed our pseudo-color process. But we wanted, you know, if you're going to image the Archimedes panel text, you might as well image it all and not just the Archimedes pages. And Natalie's job, and Natalie was working on a PhD on Byzantine panel testing practices at Cambridge at the time. And her job was to look at the stuff that wasn't by Archimedes. And then on the 19th of October 2002, I got this email. It says, Dear Will, in the course of further exploration of the non Archimedes folios, I recently deciphered the text of a Greek orator unknown otherwise. I could identify parts of lost speeches by Hyperides. Um, doesn't sound too exciting, but actually Hyperides uh, was one of the ten canonical orators of antiquity. Uh, he wrote 77 speeches of, of the, in, uh, in the ancient world, and he was a lauded contemporary of Demosthenes, with whom he was buddies. Um, unlike Demosthenes, he hadn't made the transition from uh, scroll to codex. So, no one had, and, the, and we only knew about Hyperides and quotations until 1847 when people found a pari of Hyperides in Thebes in Egypt. Uh, this is the only extant Hyperides manuscript ever found in a codex. And there are six pages of it. Um, and they are being published currently. Uh, this is by Natalie, and it concerns a domestic law case, which I think is fascinating if you're interested in Greek domestic law. Uh, the other case, the one that is called um, Against Diondas, and um, hereby hangs a tale because um, it turns out that this speech was written in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Chironia in 338 BC, when of Macedon and Alexander uh, crushed the alliance of Athens and Thebes and brought an end to the golden age of Athenian democracy. And Demosthenes and Hyperides have both advocated forcefully for fighting Philip and Alexander and not coming to accommodation, so they were on the losing side. And it was their defense of themselves, it was Demosthenes' defense of that led to his masterwork, De Corona. This is the parallel speech to De Corona. Uh, so, if one wants to know about the politics of the world's founding democracy, then this is, you know, a revelation. People got very excited about this. So, everyone met at the British Academy, uh, and we uh, widened our circle of scholars, and we did this both in person. <coughs> Uh, and on the internet. Now, this is our website, www.archimedespalancest.org, and you can go to the Archimedes Forum. And if you go to the Archimedes Forum as a member of the general public, 
all you get is the general discussion, which is mainly about Christianity against science, as far as I can work out. Uh, but if you have the password, then you can go under here and you can see the scholars working on an online community. Uh, this is all their stuff trying to read hyperides. Um, you know, they're just struggling to read this stuff. For all the images efforts, it's still very, very hard to read. Uh, but they've done it now. Um, and then uh, we got another surprise on June the 11th. Dear Will, excellent news. The hard drive and photos came safely this week. At first glance suggests there's no more hyperides, but several leaves of a philosophical text, on one of which I read the name Aristotle clearly enough. Now, clearly for Nigel isn't really clearly for the rest of us, but, um, <laughs> but it's, well, let me try and write this, yeah. So it's, so it's actually here, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not. Here, here it is, and Revy, I got Revy L kindly to spell it out for, so there, there it is. Uh, so people get more and more interested in this. Uh, there's Nigel Wilson. We blow it up on the screen for him because he doesn't like using a computer. And there's Bob Sharp, also at University College London. Uh, and uh, they put this together on a wiki. And it turns out almost certainly to be um, a lost commentary on Aristotle's categories by Alexander of Aphrodisias from the 3rd century AD. Aristotle's categories being one of the foundational documents of Western philosophy, and Alexander Aphrodisias being no mean commentator on that about contemporary Galen. So, you know, this is sort of getting absurd. Um, and you're wondering, you know, what is this super book? What, what library did this guy rip up, you know? Uh, And then we made, you know, further progress to our imaging. So, so we managed. This is an iron map of folio one, and if you're ready on that, you can read that, and you can now have the final proposition of our floating bodies in the original Greek. Uh, in our imaging session last year, we never had much luck with the infrared, but we thought we'd do it anyway. We found another unknown text, and. You know, there's a wonderful phrase called not in the TLG. I thought not in the TLG was a bad thing. But not in the TLG means that you're not in the thesaurus of the library. That is to say, you're not in the corpus of known Greek texts. Um, which is a good thing, because what you want to do is to find new texts. And this is an as yet unidentified further fourth text in the manuscript. And then this is an iron map of the bottom of page one. We found out it didn't. Uh, it says that this is the work of Johannes Myronas, and it was done on the 14th of April, 1229. Uh, this is the prayer book, not the undertaking. So, now, the 14th of April, 
the Johannes Myronas had during his talk when he was uh, making this manuscript, and he also had access in Jerusalem to a truly stunning library. Um, this is the text as it's delivered by Revion Nets. Uh, it's word, it's symbol, it's a horrible mixture. If you work with the Greek classics community, at least if you work with the Greek classics community of, of over, over 50, they have all sorts of proprietary software, all sorts of, it's just a terrible mess how they transcribe their stuff. So, uh, we have hired the Myrmidons. The Myrmidons are come in two phalanxes. Uh, one is headed by Neil Smith at the University of uh, uh, Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. And one is run by uh, Chris Blackwell at the at Furman University in South Carolina. And they turn our horrible word stuff into TEIP5 Epilogue compliant XML. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's it. Uh, they started in January. They have to finish soon. Uh, their summer is being spent, hopefully, in air-conditioned libraries as we try and get them these texts. And this is an XSL transformation, uh, as a, a beginning of one, uh, of that text. And now I come to uh, the true hero of my story, one Douglas Emery, the master of the data. Um, and this is, uh, this is where it sort of gets exciting. Uh, because I think that this whole project has been driven by a very anonymous, very quiet private collector who did this all for a purpose. What he wanted to do was to take the most esoteric, bound up knowledge that only one person could look at if they had multiple degrees and he wanted to stick it on the internet for anybody who wanted to look at it. And it doesn't matter that this is unbelievably esoteric. It's a matter of principle too. So we need to put it on the internet for everyone to look at, and without Doug being totally stuck, uh, Doug being viewed away from Accenture uh, to uh, work on this. Uh, this is what the imaging metadata looks like. There are 109 data points for every image that we have. Uh, it's all going on the website. This is archimedespalimpsest.org, but if you click on digital product, you will get our beta release. Uh, and uh, that's what the first thing of our beta release looks like. If you go to the data here, this is the core data, uh, you will have uh, all the uh, folios of the Archimedes palimpsest spread out before you. You click on one, you have all the images in TIFF files, 254 megabyte TIFF files. Uh, you have uh, MD5 checksums. Uh, you will have all the metadata at the moment is embedded in the header of the TIFF file, but it'll also be an XML file. Uh, at the bottom, you also have mappings of the uh, TEI data to individual pages. So there are 16 pages like this for any individual page. This is the other side of folio 105.110, which contains better proposition 14. It's all for you to use. Uh, it's the raw data of our images. It's the images they process from. Anyone can use this. It's the 
free of charge. It's on a 3.0 copyright. You can even make money out of this if you want. Uh, this is the uh, XML. Now, the XML, what we're doing is we're doing uh, XML of Heiberg's edition and XML of the next Wilson transcription. So this is the XML of Heiberg. This is the XML of next Wilson. And for both, we are doing mappings to the line so that you can uh, actually see at least where a line of transcription is supposed to go. And if anyone's ever bold enough to invent a GUI for this data, uh, then you can get specification to a line on this data. Uh, have a README document written by Mike and Doug. Goes through the context, rights and conditions of use. Uh, we have a list file. We have file naming conventions. We have the Archimedes Palimpsest Folio Index. Uh, we have all sorts of data that we hope, metadata that we hope will make this a permanent digital asset, uh, a really persistent digital object for the future, because of course the manuscript itself is not the place to read Archimedes anymore. The place to read Archimedes now is on the web at archimedespalimpsest.net. And we don't know what's going to happen with the manuscript. In the short term, it's going back to the owner. But who knows what will happen to it? So, uh, this is where Archimedes is going to be. Uh, the owner is a man of passion, uh, big brains, and enormous financial resources. And he has been backing this whole operation all the way through. Uh, it's been a lot of work for a lot of people. This was before treatment in 1997. This is after treatment now. <laughs> <laughs>